0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
3: Good morning. Welcome to the line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg. I'm coming at you live from Bushwick, and like every week, I'm going to spend the entire show today speaking one-on-one with a talented chef about his career, his childhood, his inspirations, his hopes, his fears, his dreams, you know, the normal. I'm going to grill him on his life. If you love Brooklyn food, restaurant stories, pop-ups, Asian food, Southwest flavors, and hearing what goes into developing a career that leads to becoming an executive chef of a restaurant, stick around. This episode is most definitely for you. Today, my guest is Eduardo Sandoval. He is the executive chef of Tiger Shark, which is located in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Eduardo was born in El Paso, Texas. He's worked at several restaurants in New York, including Landmark, Valse, Mission Chinese, Mission Cantina. At Tiger Shark, Uh, it's a restaurant that's uh, fronted by a coffee shop. It has some surfer vibes. He serves uh, Asian-inspired dishes. Uh, They often blend his uh, southern influences and utilizes chilies from various areas of the world to create very bold flavors. I'm a huge fan of the restaurant. I've been several times. Eduardo, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to begin by talking about your menu. Uh, I referred earlier to Asian and Southwest flavors. I'm curious how you would describe your menu. Uh, There is a corn fritter on the menu that has crab, charred scallion crema, cotilla cheese, shishito peppers, right next to a hamachi sashimi bop, which is a grilled rice ball with cured mackerel, tobiko, herb salad and goju so those live side by side on your menu talk about uh, menu conceptualization and uh, how free do you run with your flavors and your dish construction
4: um, I, I would say I run pretty free with everything I kind of like to break traditions I guess um, before I was doing tiger shark I was doing uh, Mexican pop ups so I'd say southwest is fairly accurate I was trying to go more of a I was trying to explore the authenticity of Mexican sweet cuisine beyond like tacos and burritos. But I am from Texas and I do know more about Southwest flavors than I do authentic Mexican cuisine. So the idea was the, the Southwest, the Mexican part of it would shine through um, uh, whatever recipes I was trying to develop in the Korean aspect of things. So the fritter was actually a play off of a traditional Korean dish but instead of it keeping it flat I created some I I allowed it to ferment and created some yeast and fried it and it just puffed up to nice little balls and
3: you just kind of run with it cool uh so you're no stranger to the pop-up. Uh, you did them for quite a while amidst your various restaurant, kitchen working jobs. My brother and I, we did Samisa, our restaurant, as a pop-up. So I sort of know what it's like to move things around from apartment to bar. Uh, it's uh, kind of a daunting thing to set up a restaurant in a couple hours. And, you know, where do you get deliveries? It's it's a hassle. I think we can both Very agree so. on that. <laughs> but I want to know... Um, what, is your, what was your pop-up called? And also, where did you do it around Brooklyn? How did it evolve? I
4: did... Um, my pop-up was called El Bronquito. Um, kind of an ode to like a, a family thing we got back home. And I popped up throughout... Um, the drink was a very... It was, it was a home base for me. They were very welcoming. And uh, they helped lay the foundation down for me being able to do whatever I did beyond that. I popped up at Delilah's uh, cheese steak place, which isn't around anymore. But they also helped me get started. And then it was mostly bars, like uh, another place out in Friends and Lovers, and I think I did. I think I did a wine bar for like three weeks, just one one night a week. It just try to stay moving.
3: Were you always just trying to get the word out about it, or was it more like you called up a friend and said, I got this cool pop-up, like, let me do it for a night. If it works, let me come back for a second night. How does it really... A lot of people, they they hear the word pop-up, but they don't exactly know all the effort that goes into it you know they think it's more of like a restaurant kitchen takeover for a night where you come in and everything's prepped out for you and you're just right. like hey man here's my menu let's execute it it's not really like that not at all <laughs> it was like you
4: said it was very daunting and i did it i did it for a year and i didn't really have a kitchen i had to like use somebody else's kit it was very much a headache uh but i i was i was trying to make something legitimate out of it i wanted to like go I, I wanted everybody to know where i was going to be and i try and use the uh, social media because mm-hmm. i couldn't afford pr it was just me doing everything right uh so i would just develop relationships being like using the drink as like a reference i was like look usually when i come in here i get a following of people and just you make something good enough like hopefully people come through and
3: Juxtapose the pop-up experience with working at a traditional restaurant like Landmark. Uh, Landmark is in the fifties, right? It's at right. Columbus, Columbus Circle, so it's fine dining. It's like a, you know, it's a one of the Mark Murphy restaurants. Right. It's in the that Empire, fairly corporate, I would assume.
4: Very corporate. Okay. That one
3: was. So, speak a little bit about that experience relative to you, you know, illegally cooking in the drink or whatever. <laughs>
4: Uh well I mean <clears throat> I was still pretty young when I was doing Landmark and it was very corporate and I was just coming back from Texas um and it was it was a good experience but it was it was very stifling as far as creativity because it was more babysitting all the people who were like older than me and probably more experienced than me but I was like I was kind of their I was their sous chef after like 6 months of working there like it worked up so it wasn't there was no creative outlet and of course at the time i wasn't sure what i really wanted to cook but there was no way of uh i find identity with how how i wanted to find myself in the culinary world so in in the in the pop-ups it was a lot more it was a lot more of me which made it more of a vulnerable experience which made it nice to work in bars because there was a little bit of alcohol to kind of...
3: Sure, there was a little bit of flavor n- lubrication,
4: right? It right? Like, I can, I can be a little bit creative and not have to worry about...
3: I'm, I'm curious about the landmark experience where you say that, you know, you were people's bosses, that you were, you know, maybe in years-wise less experienced than, they were older than you. How did you earn that? uh, type of respect in a corporate kitchen environment where they, they're like, who's this kid bossing me around? Do you just, do you just grind it out every day? And at a certain point it turns a corner and people are like, Oh shit, this guy can cook or he, he's, what did you do? Did you did, were you really tough? Were you nurturing? How do you kind of win the, win the room over?
4: Uh, that, that's a good question. I, I had, I had to go and learn every station and I had to I actually had to learn Spanish with them and sh- because growing up Mexican, I didn't want to learn Spanish. So I learned it in New York and mostly in this kitchen. And uh, I had to work each station. I had to be just as good as the one next to me. And whenever I got that station down, I'd always try and help on, on the other one. And then I would just try and take the challenges of, like, what are the challenging stations? And within time, I just learned it. And and when you work next to them and you, you seem competent with what you're doing... And you're not trying to hold any ego over anybody, then it's a lot easier for them to, like, open up to you, like, as, like, um, as, like a peer. And then within time, I would um, made my way to Expo, which it, there it was, like, 13 men on the line, and there was two Expos, one for, like, the apps and one for the entrees. And then I had to, like, Expo, which was also really hard. And as long as, long as you pull your team out of the weeds and you, and you know they got you, then you kind of, like, start winning their respect. Until, until you have to stand up and you have to like flex and yell at somebody who's like seven feet tall.
3: And who's like, been, who's yeah. been there for 10 years and yeah. thinks they know everything. And he's
4: yeah. like, what are you going to do? I'm like, mm, I'm not backing down. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to get through
3: this together. I'm curious about, uh, I want to talk about your background and growing up in El Paso in a second. But being in a New York kitchen, your name is Eduardo Sandoval. Do people assume, based on your name, that you are either not an American or that you are not capable of doing the job? There is a negative connotation associated with uh, people from South America and the United States that they are the dishwashers of the kitchen and that they maybe – Aren't as skilled as other people. Uh, did you face any uh, negativity from people that prejudged you based on without knowing maybe anything about you? I mean, you said you didn't you didn't speak Spanish. Did you also face some negativity from Spanish speakers as well that you didn't speak Spanish?
4: <laughs> there was there was um, I had to I had to earn respect as far as like the Mexican respect because. I did. I wasn't born in Mexico, and I didn't know any Spanish. And my name was Sandoval, but I couldn't say it with a Mexican accent at the time or Spanish accent. Uh, But most of the kitchens are Latinos. Most of people do come from South America, so they do. it, It was easier for me to play into that and like join in with the ranks and just like work hard with them and then learn how to speak Spanish. So it was. It wasn't more until. It wasn't more into like I had to dealt with more English-speaking people who were like of maybe a higher pay grade that never really thought I was Mexican. <laughs> when I find an identity in my Mexican culture, and then somebody's like, "Oh yeah, you're, what are you like Italian?" You're like you like half half Mexican. I'm like, well, kind of like in, grew up in the most Mexican part of Texas, and <laughs> I'm pretty. Both my parents are pretty pretty Mexican. Uh, so it it that that's been been most a struggle of like. Identifying more with Mexican but it it's been it's been pretty comforting or like welcoming that I chose a career where a lot of the people are like the paisas you know like people come over and made the hustle and chase the dream
3: when uh when you were growing up in El Paso uh it's right on the border right so Juarez is right on the opposite side of El Paso, basically, yeah. so you can be in Mexico, depending on where you lived in El Paso, in a matter of minutes, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about what what your childhood was like. Uh, were your parents um, born in America? If you didn't know Spanish, was it because Spanish wasn't spoken in your home, or did you just... Rebel against that. Uh, mostly rebel. <laughs> okay, so what was childhood like for you in El Paso growing up? How did uh, El I know El Bronquito has uh, threads that reach back to your early childhood. So, uh, well, <clears throat> my both my parents were born in El Paso. Um, my
4: dad was probably first generation, and my mom maybe like second generation. Um, and there there is there is a lot of Mexicans, um, second third generation. It's just. It, a lot of them are removed. A lot of them don't always speak Spanish, it's, but you're just like, you identify with that more. Um, my grandparents didn't speak any English. And for my childhood, I mostly connected with this, um, I guess we would call it a flea market. We called it the swap meet. And uh, my grandfather had bought some about an acre worth of land and they turned it into booths. Booths or bodegas that we called them, and everybody, a majority of people, would come over from from Mexico, and they would want to sell their stuff and do their hustle, and then go back, and it just be a weekend thing. But within that, were like stalls. There was always Mexican food around. Uh, obviously, they, some of it would be Americanized because you know you gotta gotta know your audience. But um, so I every weekend I would grow up in this. Uh, we'd go collect, and it was it was like it was a little piece of Mexico and everybody had like their their thing that they cooked some some woman made our favorite gorditas so that's where we go get our gorditas and then this person did like a barbecue burrito which is just like smoked and shredded brisket on beans, super thin really good, he would run out so he'd want to get there at a certain time you had, you had your plots on how you're going to do things there was this thing, that when it was cold and we had to get up and go with dad to the and sit in the office there was this like Almost like a cream of wheat, but like it's like a corn masa thing, but chocolate and like some spices. And it was really heavy, but it was almost drinkable. So that's where we spent a lot of that's that's where I remember being for most of my childhood until I graduated and ran out.
3: Did you all were you obsessed with food or was it just a culture of food that you were a part of?
4: Um, I I was I was pretty rebellious after um after my parents split so i food wasn't really something that rained heavy in in the household or just i didn't really know much about it i just i like, i just worked with my hands that's what we did
3: let's focus on the rebellion then where did that t- <laughs> where did that take you uh how did you uh how did you get out of el paso what what led you to leave
4: uh just just getting making it out on my own really um we have, I mean, we have two family businesses, um, and it was, it seemed cool, like they're all welders or they're all jack of all trades. and They do a little bit of everything. Um, but not, there, nothing in it felt creative. It was just put your head down at work. And there's nothing, I, I commend them for everything. It's not that I just, I didn't feel right for myself to just do that. So I jumped out and I left. To Austin against my dad's wishes, he was like, "Just stay for one year." I was like, mm, "I'm gonna have to run." And then you know, I find myself in Austin, and now I'm like <clears throat> trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was gonna go to like architect school, but um, it was yeah. I just I just wanted to. I didn't I didn't want to learn Spanish. I wanted to get out of the family business. I wanted to leave El Paso, and I just kind of wanted to see what was out there for myself.
3: Did you start working in Austin right away? Like, how did you bide your time? I did. I, uh, I, my family
4: was out there. My my mom was out there. I kind of, like, found shelter for a little bit until I could, like, figure out what I was going to do. Because I, I still didn't know what I was, I didn't even know what I wanted to be, go to college for. I knew we this had This is go basically to right after you finished high school. Right after I finished. Actually, we, I came and visited New York. Um, it was like a graduation gift. And even then I was like, you know, we tried a couple of restaurants. I was like, Oh, it's kind of cool. I think if, if one of, after one of them, I tried to go home and recreate it.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But uh, just because it seemed like a good challenge. But uh, yeah, I, I was like, All right, well, I get to college and then kind of figure it out from there. So did you end up going to college? I started in a community college. I did about like two years, thinking I was gonna do architecture
3: in Austin. In Austin, yeah. okay. Then where's the next step? What what happens after those two years? Uh,
4: I couldn't. I couldn't. The, the same reason why I left home. I couldn't keep doing a job that I would like fall asleep standing up. I was falling asleep standing up, putting videos away at a blockbuster. Like, I didn't drink and I didn't do. I didn't smoke. I didn't do anything. I was just like that bored of everything. I was like, I need to. I need to get out of this. I need to find some, I need to find some way to make money and like, you know, take something out of it that I would enjoy doing. Even if not, even if I'm not going to do it forever.
3: You were looking for something to be passionate about. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that, what, what did, that, where did it lead you? Where did you end up? That led me to
4: right before moving to Austin, I worked at a, at an Applebee's and that's kind of like where everything started. And I was a dishwasher. That, that's what I rebelled against my family for was to wash dishes. I was like, you know what? Uh, let me try this Applebee gig. There was another guy who was driving like this nice Honda. I was like, yo, dude, come work in the restaurant, you know? Be a b- buster or waiter or something and be like, make them tips. I was like, all right, well, I'll check it out. And all they had for me was a dish. Bar. I was like, all right, I'll start there. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the dish pit was kind of a hustle. Was, you know, you really had to stay on top of it. And the guys in the line I thought were like really intense and crazy. And I was like, I want to get, like, you know, each station always has its hardest station. It was like a flat-top station, a grill station, and then the fry station. And um, I remember seeing the fry guy who was, like, you know, maybe a year or t- two younger, older than me. And I wanted to do it because it looked really hard. It looked really crazy, and, like, the intensity and the adrenaline. And I was like, I want to get on that station. And like after, like after, like, a month and a half or two, the guy, the manager... I was like, all right, have at it. If you can't keep up, we'll take you off. It's was like, all right. <laughs> It's Probably it. a
3: lot of stuff comes off the fry station At, every, at, at, everything, Apple.
4: yeah. at Applebee's, everything's fried The, the guy
3: <laughs> in the flat top is just standing there watching you fry literally every single thing on the menu, right? Yeah,
4: it's like if you can get through the fry station, then yeah, you can cruise on these other two yeah. <laughs> kind of
3: The guy picking up all the fish dishes to order on the planche is not really working that hard at all. <laughs> He's
4: kind of just putting three fish and just watching them
3: <laughs> Um. So. So you... Catch the itch at an Applebee's, right? <laughs> so you start, you you hit the fryer, you work your way up. How long until you think to yourself, "All right, I like cooking." Does a does a switch flip? Do you say, "All right, that was that was cool." On to the next thing, or did you kind of fall backwards into the next thing?
4: um Well, yeah, the, ap- the Applebee's thing was it just piqued my curiosity, but that was in El Paso, and then I was in. Uh in Austin trying to figure it out and I was like you know what, maybe I'll get back into the kitchens because that just seems like that'd be something that I can like get into um, I try to go back to Applebee's in Austin they're like mm, no not enough experience You're just not we don't need we want something more and I was like I guess shortly after that I was looking through the newspaper and I saw an article for like culinary school like one year in and out get you in a restaurant and I was like alright you know instead of like Washing dishes for another six months and then working on another station for another six months. I thought, why don't I just do this for, like, a year? And kind of, like, I still I still had no idea about food. I wasn't really cooking. I wasn't working in a restaurant. It was just, and I was still trying to go to school to be, you know, learn architecture. So I, I did the school, and, and then that's kind of like, it kind of took off from there, meaning I had, was opened up to this whole world and in my mind i thought i was gonna finish this school and then go back to culinary school and or uh, college and maybe what
3: was the name of the culinary school
4: texas culinary academy
3: and you went for a year one year yeah cool what was your favorite class do you remember anything specific <laughs> about being at texas culinary
4: no i don't <laughs> do you think you
3: learned a lot of stuff
4: uh I think I think it helped me with a foundation of just basic knowledge which
3: knife skills
4: yeah which I had never really cut things Had never so it was it was exciting when you like build a sauce and you make like a bejamel. um and it works and it, yeah <laughs> but then I'm still like what is a bechamel why am I making this and then and then you have all these tools and you start in a restaurant in New York and it's like oh we don't make these things <laughs> so <laughs> I spent a year learning these sauces, but you guys, you guys don't even care about that. That's, huh?
3: They're like, here, clean all these potatoes for the next <laughs> yeah. five hours. Uh, wash these uh, greens over yeah. here. I'm like, cool. <laughs> that was a lot of money for <laughs> washing.
4: It was, I mean, but it was, it was a, it was a unique experience. A lot, I mean, a lot of stuff happened throughout that schooling, and I actually didn't even go for the best part of the classes because I had a cousin move in with me, and we would like. We stayed out. We went a little too hard. He he brought the party home always. Gotcha. And I was like kind of the the follower in it. I was like, oh, this is cool. They like opened my world to something I'd never seen. And uh, so he, he was actually, the, my cousin was one who was like more passionate about the food. So like. He, he was in culinary school with you? He was, but he started like uh, a block behind. Oh, so I was like, all right, cool. I'll I'll just not go to these classes and then I'll pick him up. after. Thinking you could do that like a semester. I was like, I'll miss this semester and get on the next board. And they're like, no, when you're in, you're in. I'm Mm -hmm. like, really? We can't. All right. I had to, like, charm him or something to try and get me to redo everything. So we end up getting getting into classes together. And then, of course, I'm the one that finishes, and he's just like, eh, I'm over it. (laughs) I'll go go learn it in a restaurant. I'm like.
3: Well, where does it take you from there? You finish at Texas Culinary. Do you decide to jump to New York City right away? Yeah, well, um, again, I was looking for a move.
4: And in in this brief moment of a year discovering passion in cooking, I, um, Austin was great. Austin had great food. But if I was already living there, I, I, was, I thought about using this externship that you have to do at the end of your schooling uh, to go somewhere, wherever. And I had a friend out in Chicago. And I was like, um, you no, know, maybe I'll send out a bunch of resumes over there and I could like stay with my friend. He could like help jumpstart everything. But then on some wild note, I'm walking out of school one day and I found a box, they stepped over a box of matches that said Tribeca Grill, and I was like, oh, what? this is interesting. And I looked into it and it was in New York City. And it was attached to Robert De Niro's name. And I was like, let me just let me look into this. And I sent one resume out to that to them and then I still remember michael sobelman was this he was a sous chef executive sous chef or sous chef and he calls me he gets he, he's like yeah you want to come out here i'm like yeah i'd love to come out We're in new york city right he's like yeah i was like um yeah what, what, what do you need from me he's like well let me get you in touch with the executive chef and uh, we'll see what we can do and it's like all right so it's like i waited around think hope, like executive chef is always too busy to do anything so he finally michael calls me again and he's like uh yeah well the the job's yours I just want to make sure you're not gonna screw us and you know we got the shift waiting for you and you don't show up i'm like i'll be there if you give me a job i'll i'll, I'll make sure i'm in new york city so i had to come up and i got, I got here like four days before that rented a hotel and then just kind of wow. <laughs> i didn't know anybody i rented a hotel and had the job and I was like, Well as long as I can make money I can eventually figure out where to live and I had to like live in Newark for a year.
3: <laughs> so you just basically showed up on the first day of your job and you've been in New York less than a week?
4: I, I showed up I showed up two to three days before. But yeah, I had, I knew I had this job, so like the first day I think the first day I was walking around New York City with my dad and he's like, What are you doing? Like why do you want to do this? I was like, I don't know, Pops like it's gonna be fine. I mean while we're standing at like uh union now, yeah, Union Square, 14th Street, right? And it's just a bunch of like kids out. It's like May. And it just looks for us, suburbia, El Paso, far from New York people. It's like, this seems crazy, son. <laughs> I'm like, I think it's gonna be fine.
3: <laughs> thank God you stepped over that matchbook. Yeah, were right. Like, I mean, were they just they were just leaving matchbooks by the stairs to all these <laughs> culinary schools over the United States? They're like, oh, thank God that matchbook thing really worked. We uh, <laughs> we landed another kid. He founded in a uh, at Texas Culinary. Helped another one. Yeah, exactly. When we come back, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna talk more about uh, New York and cooking with Chef Eduardo Sandoval from Tiger Shark. We'll be right back.
1: New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified program at Certified.ny.gov.
3: Welcome back to The Line, everyone. I wanted to remind you that The Line and all the other fantastic shows on Heritage Radio are available on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, as well as iTunes and Stitcher. If you're into that podcast thing, you can download them and you can listen to them whenever you want on the train, in the car, on the bike, take them with you. Uh, Please go and check out some past episodes of all the great shows on Heritage Radio Network. We just celebrated our 10,000th episode last week, so that was very exciting, and they all live on the site, so you can go check out all those past episodes. I'm here with uh, Chef Eduardo Sandoval. He's the executive chef of Tiger Shark in Prospect Heights. He was born in El Paso, and he has worked at many restaurants in New York. He had a pop-up called El Bronquito for a while that led to him ending up, I believe, meeting Doug Wang, who is the uh, first-time restaurant owner of Tiger Shark. I want to talk about how that came to be. How does a guy who's never run a restaurant decide to open up a restaurant in Prospect Heights? How did you guys meet and how did you decide on what the format would be and all those other million things that, that go into uh, how a restaurant comes to become alive?
4: Uh, well, I know, I've known Doug Wang for uh, a couple years before leading up to this whole venture. And I was running a restaurant called Miller's Tavern in Brooklyn, um, which, was, which was maybe officially my first restaurant that I was at the helm of as far as I... Like, menu design and running the kitchen and even it even bled into like front of the house work just overseeing everything and he w- he was a regular there we're like situated like two corners down from Walter Foods which was like always the busiest part of Williamsburg and so we would catch the carryover like if they were at a long wait they'd come wait at Miller's and we did this really gnarly bogus thing called Dollar Oysters <laughs> and <laughs> with no real oyster shucker at the time <laughs> And uh, so he, he he would frequent there and um, just just by the charm that Miller's Tavern was in the people that he met and what he experienced out of that, I think it was something that he wanted to encapsulate and have for himself. Um, and then, you know, fast forward two, three years from that, that encounter was... Run into him at our our local spots, and then we just had like very much mutual friends, and so we were just always running into each other. And he would tell me about his, his, his project that he was opening up, and he had he had a he had a consult chef that was helping him, and but he really needed another chef that was going to stay in, and run it for him. And we developed a relationship through through that. It was while I was doing my pop ups, and I was like, I don't know if I'm really want to go work for somebody right now, but um. That, that that's when the magic happened. When we we he started helping me at some of the pop ups. It was just like how he courted me. I would say,
3: just like getting down, seeing if you guys yeah. kind of vibe together, seeing if you can yeah turn that into a working relationship. Yeah, because if you
4: can't work next to the cook, it's like what's the point? Right, it's just gonna be buddy. And we had to be able to dance together.
3: The. Uh... The sort of the feel of Tiger Shark, uh, it hits you right at the front window for the people that haven't been there yet. It's got a really big glass facade. It's got a cool neon lighting in the front. And then you come in and you're like, oh, I, I think I might be in the wrong spot. I'm not sure if I'm in the restaurant. Am I at the restaurant? Because it has a sort it has a shop in front it has coffee and it has some uh like surfboard vibe stuff that you can buy like wax and things of that nature right so um and then you come back into the restaurant and in my opinion it is not a detriment to the restaurant at all it's cool it feels like you're like sneaking into somewhere like you're discovering the restaurant every time uh did uh, did the design – did you have anything to do with the design of the restaurant? And um, I'm curious also about how you decided to uh, break up the back room. For people that have never been there, I still want to have a little bit of a visual discussion because it's cool. It's like there's like a bit of like this private dining room and there's a chef counter. It's like you hit all the things that you're supposed to do with a restaurant in a very small space by, by breaking it up and making it feel intimate. Um how did you guys go about the design and uh if if someone helped who was it? Uh well,
4: you know, I would attribute most of that to Doug and his yeah, having his idea of how he wanted things to work and he he had the concept and the idea and um I came in shortly after the plans were already drawn up and they had everything kind of laid out. So as far as that layout part, uh I don't know how much I but it, was, it wasn't really me. It was him and the architect. Uh, but Doug did come from a, a re- retail background, like he was in fashion, and he he's more familiar with that stuff. And that was something that, in a leap of faith, he thought you know wanted to try something new and different. Like that's not something you normally find in a restaurant. And that, like you said, the you peel back the curtain that we just put up, and you you see this restaurant, and it just seems like it seems like a a wonderful discovery. So that that was all that was all intentional on his part, and then the aesthetic the look a lot of it the has been him and his architect
3: and, and you've then got I, that you've got this big open kitchen it's like a a, a in bar counter but it, it faces the kitchen really right um how's that work for you
4: I, that that's great and i think uh I think when most people <laughs> when most people come in and they see me at the helm and I'm like in the middle it, they kind of they they think that i it was my thought out plan to just have this stage for myself as I like just throw sling these dishes to people, but it was really something that was already set, and um, when I came on we had to I had to figure out how because it was so much equipment it was it was actually supposed to be two times as big kitchen equipment wise and I was like there 's no way I can run a kitchen for this many people with all this equipment so I had to do the opposite of what most chefs would do. is was like, give some really nice stuff away. I was like, no, no, You're no. Like, we don't
3: need all this oh, stuff, This great, this
4: beautiful convection oven? No, <laughs> let's get that later or something. Two
3: fryers? Oh, I'll just do it with one. Uh, the hardest decision ever. Be <laughs> like, oh, new equipment to return? Why, why, why? why? Uh, but I had to scale back
4: the kitchen and make it a little more like feasible. And then the barb was actually the, a little bit of an afterthought. And... Um, uh yeah i it, it, i tried to situate it the best so that it does create more of a platform it is like a stage and then set the lighting almost accordingly but it it is it is a very raw experience as to like you can't i mean i'm not gonna not yell at somebody if i need to and i'm not gonna like you know tiptoe around a kitchen and not do the work that we need to do but at the same time it is very much an intimate thing and there's customers sitting there and they're like hawking at you and I don't know if they're like really watching because they like what they're seeing or is it like they're waiting for their food too long? It's like
3: I've always felt that, you know, the open kitchen is like a double-edged sword because it gives the consumer what they think they want, which is insight into what happens in the back kitchen. Right. But it seems to stretch time for them. Like a one-minute normal wait is a five-minute wait. If you can see what's going on in the kitchen, you're like, yes, that's my chicken what? That's someone else's chicken? <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, that's my, oh, who's who's getting all this Where food right now? Chicken? Where is my chicken, right? And so um, that can cause sort of like a, the kitchen doesn't isn't allowed to work at its own pace, right? Because you're not operating as a kitchen. You're operating partly as a show, which I yes. think can be uh, really stressful for some people in the kitchen. It seems like you've been able to deal with it and handle it and sort of embrace it. How do you convey that to your cooks like, look, they can see everything you do. Like, don't I don't I don't know, like don't take off your hat in the kitchen because right. someone's going to see it and be like that guy took off his hat. Like he's you know, like the smallest things someone can catch it and be interpreted. You can wash your hands 50 times a day and the one time you touch someone's raw chicken with your hand to see if it's cooked yet, they're like you touched my food with your hand. It's like <laughs> Yeah, I, I- how else do you them. think we cook it? But um so how do you kind of convey uh to the folks in your kitchen, like, look that this is our cooking environment, this is how we operate. It takes some getting used to, right?
4: Uh, yeah, it definitely takes getting used to. Uh and it's like in initially when you're giving them the walkthrough and the trail, you you just have to make it a point that like try and look good and just know that people are watching you. And if there's anything that you can just step off the line and kinda like do something that you don't want other people to see. <laughs> you know, you got an itch on your nose, just like...
3: Gather yourself you, Yeah, you, can't, you closed you door. You can't
4: even squat because you can, they yeah, can still see you. It's, right. a, it's a very open and intimate kitchen.
3: Nowhere to hide.
4: No. no. <laughs> and, yeah, you, you also have to kind of find... Uh, in, you have to hire the right people as well.
3: Sure. That that definitely plays into it. When you when you say when you talk about hiring and you talk about visibility and I also want to know um how does uh how does your current position influence uh your choices to uh to source and I want you to talk a little bit about um Doug's background because his family was in fish for 30 years. I want to know if that plays into the restaurant at all. But um, when you're making these decisions as an executive chef, all right, I'm hiring this person. I'm sourcing from here. I'm uh, going to put this on the menu. How do you How do you just organize your brain every single day as being in charge of the restaurant? Um, do, you, do you keep do you keep lists? Do you have like a running kind of brain note that's like all right, today I'm tackling this, tomorrow I'm going to like figure out that. How do how do you how do you manage all those different things?
4: It's uh well, I to start real quick, I would say a lot like one of my one of my best friends is a musician and we've gone back and forth to like uh, challenge one another. And one of the things I take away from his career is like producing. <laughs> And I never really understood what it was until, until like talking to him. And I was like, "So who gets all the credit for what happens here?" I said, like, well, the producer does most of the stuff. Like he, he'll make the most money. You get the artist, but the guy who's producing it really. So I've approached it in that way, where I'm going to hire somebody who uh, has strengths that play into my weaknesses. But at, in the overall scheme of things, it's going to be they're going to help. They're going to help in the areas that I can't always like find time for. They're gonna do like the legwork, they're gonna like assist with like creativity and, and it's a great outlet we can like all work together and the overall goal is like the create the the bending of rules and the unique things that we try and come come up with at Tiger Shark. And then yeah, everything everything is lists. I love I I love writing things out instead of just having like printouts and check a box. Like I'll have I'll have my list of every ingredient that needs to go into a dish In the order of how the dish is built up and then you kind of like sit down at the end of each shift and go over it in my head and then you have your cooks and because it's open you can just like check everything off there and it's like it's almost like a it's meditative and you sit down for like an hour and you write everything out and you strategize your next day and i find that if you prepare well enough at night it you know sets you up for a great morning
3: have you found other places that are kind of blending flavors the way that you do? You're doing a Korean uh at first glance it's a Korean menu. Correct. When you look underneath when you see the ingredients, when you think about the thought process that's going into them, it is not traditional, nor is it um nor is it built necessarily only upon the foundation of K- Korean flavors. Mm-hmm. So um it's a it's an exciting thing to eat for the consumer and uh I hope and I assume it's exciting for all you guys to cook but where do you see uh how far do you see that being able to go for you
4: um
3: uh that's that's
4: actually a terrifying question because i don't i don't know <laughs> um the menu we've been doing right now has been going for a year and uh, I haven't tried to mess with it too much because it is unique and people do really enjoy it but uh, there is more to explore as far as the Korean aspect of things. So, <clears throat> in this slow time of January, hopefully, we'll put some good effort into un- un- unravel like getting into more Korean dishes, and then just kind of like putting our spin to it. But <clears throat> going back to his family, the seafood is always a strong part of it because that's that's like where he comes from. The seafood and the Korean aspect. And those always play a huge role into how I would approach any of the dishes. Whereas Korean Korean food isn't just limited to seafood. There's a lot of like you know, there's like the, the steamed pork belly that they call bosom served as like with wraps and they have like a lot of great barbecue. Um but it does in in the theme and in, in how I've like developed the uniqueness is every dish should have a seafood or you know a seafood component to it and that that becomes the foundation and then i try and find like another another dish another korean dish and like make it once and which is how we did everything like we started with a test kitchen and we used that like i tested on other people who were familiar with the food and when you learn the food well enough is then when you can like really manipulate and then because i don't know Korean food well enough, I'm never going to be able to make it authentically. So I'm never going to try and hold that standard for myself, I'm just going to be like, look, I'm, I'm going to interpret this Korean food with what I'm excited about, which is like a lot of bold Mexican
3: flavors. Well, that was going to be my next question. Are you heavily influenced by the actual <laughs> Korean food? Or I guess by that, do I mean, do you eat a lot of Korean food and then say to yourself, there's an idea in there, or do you kind of just look from afar? And maybe read about a Korean dish and say, I'm going to jump off from that. Because um, those are two very different ways to be inspired, right? You can just say, well, I know what uh, this sort of like porridge dish is. I know what this um, seafood broth might be. I know what this noodle dish may be. And then – or you could eat it 20 times at 20 different places and let it kind of really shape what your idea of it is and then go from there. How do you – how do you build your ideas? Um,
4: <clears throat> well, it's very much, I enjoy eating the Korean food. Um, and I didn't know anything about Korean food and I, I, out in Flushing is where Doug would take me to, to show me dishes that he grew up with, ones that he'd find are like the most flavorful, the most on point to what his, what he, what his mom would make. And it was kind of, yeah, I kind of dove in almost like a method actor would. And I just did everything Korean in many aspects and like even learning the words and the accent to it. Um, and then I thought, I thought I could go in there and just be like, oh, let me take this concept of what a rice and use my experience as like a cook and I'll just kind of like be weird with it, thinking it'd be successful and it wasn't. And I, develop these te- test kitchens before we open up Tiger Shark and for like six months, eight to six months we would invite uh, his friends over and I say his friends because he has a lot more Korean Asian friends that uh, than I've ever had I didn't know anybody and except Doug and we would make these dishes and we would he would throw an idea out at me and then I would just kind of like do whatever weird stuff I'd want to do with it and we would play off each other, and then we'd make it for his friends. And the reason why I'd want to make it for his friends because they were familiar. There was like, we had like eight people who grew up with a similar fl- flavor palette and a way of like how to eat noodles. Because the way they eat noodles is very different than the way an Italian would eat noodles. Uh, how much sauce do they want on it? And it was it was really like um, a research on like another culture and how, without having to leave New York, without having to leave America, I was. I was tapping into like whatever resources I could for um, uh, ethnic cuisine that I was so removed from and then when I can appease them was then when I can know how to make the product that they would like and then I can like kind of like turn it into my own which I kind of called bastardize it because not it's Korean food but no Korean would ever be like oh yeah it's good Korean food. they would be like, that's nice.
3: So at the at the pop-ups, were you imme- were you immediately met with, like, resistance? Sort of like, a, oh, good try, but not great. Or were people like, oh, wow, you've taken something that my grandmother made, and this is nothing like it, but I'm into it. Where where were the emotions it falling was, on it the, was, the spectrum?
4: It was definitely a lot of all of those things. A lot of, like, people would recognize it. Other people would be like, mm, it's pretty good, but nice try. Not really Korean, like.
3: Did they think it was messed up that you were a not a not a Korean person trying to like redo these dishes from their childhood, these classic dishes in a weird way?
4: I, I yeah, they they would uh no one was ever offended. Uh they did I I and I always kinda opened up to him and be like, look, just give me your strongest criticism. I'm not gonna I'm not going go like cry or get mad. Um but yeah, many people were it, like this like yeah this isn't this isn't really like what I thought it would be like mm, there there was there was two people that I know specifically that like really laid into me and they were like really open with their criticism it, but it helped shape my understanding of what can happen and because me I'm like oh yeah I want the sauce to be like super tight you know like look pretty the rice cakes will stack ever so whatever but then one of them was like no that's not that's not how the the fuck is you gotta like it's gotta be like saucy i was like all right but not soupy whereas they would know they're more familiar with the this rice cake dish being very soupy i was like i'll, I'll give you more sauce but i'm not gonna go soupy because it just doesn't look as attractive and it was it was kind of like that that tempering of what people expect versus what i was like trying to conceptualize and it was like more of a meeting ground where where they can kind of connect and identify with that you can still remind them of of a childhood dish
3: eduardo thanks for joining us here on the line it was really cool to hear about everything that's going on at tiger shark tell everybody the address of it so they can go check it out tiger shark is in prospect Heights at
4: 581 vanderbilt avenue and Hope to see you soon
3: open for dinner
4: and brunch we do dinner 5 30 to 11 uh we do brunches
3: uh, from 12 to 3 30 everybody go check it out tiger shark eduardo thanks again this has been the line we'll see you next tuesday 11 a.m here on heritage radio <laughs>